Hi, everyone. Welcome to our next fireside chat. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Eric Sheridan. I'm UBS's U.S. Internet and Interactive Entertainment uh, Analyst. Welcome to a conversation with Philip Schindler, Senior Vice President and Chief Business Officer for Google. Some of the statements that Mr. Schindler may make today could be considered forward-looking. These statements involve a number of risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially. Any forward-looking statements that Mr. Schindler makes are based on assumptions as of today, and Alphabet undertakes no obligation to update them. Please refer to Alphabet's Form 10-K and most recent 10-Q for a discussion of the risk factors that may affect its results. Uh, Philip joined Google in 2005 and is Google's SVP and Chief Business Officer. He oversees all global and regional sales and business activities for Google and YouTube, driving revenue, services, partnerships, and country operations. He started in Germany before heading via the UK to Silicon Valley. Philip, uh, thanks so much for joining us today here at the UBS conference. Thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. So, Philip, I wanted to jump right in. Uh, you're managing an organization with significant global scale. What has it been like in 2020 with the added challenges from the global pandemic? Well, first, uh, we had to uh, ensure that we adjust actually our own operations. I mean, we have to uh, remember we support billions of users, millions of advertisers, uh, over 130,000 uh, employees, Googlers uh, across the world and over 50 uh, different countries. And uh, while we were obviously well prepared with uh, disaster uh, recovery plans, um, they were obviously mostly focused on single-site outages, uh, sometimes multi-site outages. But what we have seen, basically, a complete move to work from home across the world uh, was obviously unknown to us. And uh, it was quite a, quite a significant effort to uh, put the right processes in place. Uh, you have to see we uh, support over 90 products uh, around the world. Uh, just as a simple example, take a process like account recovery, uh, whether you can log into your account after you might have forgotten your password or something along those lines. And uh, with 80 offices around the world um, that handle, uh, with our help center, somewhere around like 21 billion uh, visits uh, a year, that's a pretty significant number. We obviously had to adjust quite a few processes um, to really be able to operate. And sometimes we had to do this in a very short time frame. Like sometimes we only got a heads up uh, that a certain uh, country or city uh, would basically move to mandatory work from home uh, literally within days. Uh, and we had to get uh, everything ready and prepared. Um, so we did this and we have a very high bar internally. We're trying to maintain customer satisfaction levels in the 90% plus range, and we managed to do this. So, so that was a big one on the internal side. On the external side, we're obviously uh, supporting our customers and partners, and it's a big part of what we're doing. It's a really important part uh, of what we're doing. And uh, we saw supply and demand shifting, of course, significantly. Uh, that's, not a, that's not a new insight, uh, but just take a simple example. Um, the travel industry, for example, uh, was hit uh, hard, obviously, um, in the beginning of the crisis, flights, uh, hotel bookings, and so on. But we also saw areas where demand was really picking up, something like vacation rentals near me. So how do we get this information in a privacy-sensitive way to our, most, uh, to our partners across the world? Uh, you can look at the retail sector, uh, for example. Uh, demand wasn't disappearing across. It was really shifting uh, to different uh, parts of the retail sector. Um, and uh, we tried to build those tools and really early on in the crisis invested very heavily in actually providing the tools. And you see them 
um, come uh, come to life over the last few months, like rising retail categories, travel insights, and so on. And we really saw this shift. And again, a few examples here, uh, shifts toward obviously, um, first it was hand sanitizers, but then like baking flour and gym equipment and puzzles and anything that was basically related uh, to, uh, to outdoor activities. And we've really... Uh, really try to help our partners, advertisers, customers here uh, in being successful in this transition. And sometimes there were very interesting transitions. Uh, we had a distillery uh, that managed to uh, actually then move into uh, the business of hand sanitizers, just as a simple example. We had an auto trading uh, business that there wasn't a lot of auto trading going on at the time uh, that actually moved into becoming a cow auction market. Uh, and so on and so on. So we really, really try to equip our teams with the right tools so they could take it to our partners and help make them successful in those obviously very challenging times. Understood. Uh, maybe sticking with the operations, you know, as, as trends seem to be improving here, what are the what are your priorities over the next year? You know, any changes to how you think about running the business? You know, what have you learned or your takeaways from the pandemic? Look, I mean, we've always been a super data-driven, very, very analytical uh, business. And I think what has really helped us here uh, in a way is uh, the combination of the global nature of our business, but also the incredible local leadership teams and country management teams and talent that we have in place. And the fact that we actually carefully, very, very carefully uh, listen to them, just to give you an example, uh, again, uh, we had a very large internal conference with thousands of people planned uh, towards the end of January uh, in Asia. And uh, we actually had to make a call. I was hosting the conference and we had to make a call um, whether we would actually proceed or not. And we took the, at the time, I would say bold, potentially slightly controversial call to actually cancel uh, the conference. And the main reason for this was that basically our team in China was giving us daily updates on what was going on and really, really saying, hey, you have to have an eye uh, on this, and this really became very helpful, and we were very all um, early uh, in the process of then basically uh, bringing our employees home and making sure they're safe. And this was really only possible because of the local leadership teams that we have in place, and we saw it roll out across the world. Uh, we saw it then Italy, Spain, France, all the sequence, and we were very carefully listening to those teams. Uh, so had a bit of a uh, probably heads up uh, in there. In general, when it comes to operational rigor and how we how we run things, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty known. Um, we, we are, uh, I would say we run our operations more like a, a space shuttle control center or whatever it's called now, like a Falcon 9 <laughs> control center, uh, very data-driven, very analytical. Um, operational rigor is key to what we do, um, frankly. A um, couple of things uh, we're very focused on. One, and this goes back to what I just talked about, the combination and this fine balance of global uh, versus local. Uh, we run very intense what we call spread management. We have a deep understanding of the leading and lagging, lagging indicators of our business across all of the different countries in the world. We actually can not only go down to country level, we can go to a vertical level, we can go uh, to team level, and we have it all color-coded and, and, and red and then green. So we can exactly see who's good uh, and who's not so good. And if we just focus on on closing the spreads and make sure we learn from the best and help the other ones to catch up and then help the best to get even better, that's actually that's actually a very significant part of how we run our things. And I think we'll do even more of this having gone through those uh, pandemic learnings uh, at the moment. We're obsessed, second part, we're obsessed with testing and everything we do. It's a really big part of our business. But because of the, the scale we have now, we can not only test with products, which many people do, but we can just test with teams when we have it 
challenging situation and we don't quite know what to do we can actually have put five different teams on it see what works best um take the winner uh reallocate the other four to the winning uh team and then we move on from there so that's actually really helpful we're very active doing those kind of uh, experiments and then obviously we're obsessed i talked about this before with talent and putting the right talent in place which is actually the glue uh, that holds it all uh, together so that's that's some of the learnings and then other learnings which other uh, industries have gone through as well uh, nothing really new here, but the fact that we don't always need a physical presence for a lot of the operations we do in order to support our customers is kind of becoming more and more obvious to us. But I think if I were to summarize, really getting this fine balance between local empowerment, leadership, listening, and then global scale and rigor, it's speed of implementation, right? That's really, that's really the key thing, I think, the key learning, and we'll do even more of this in the future. Understood. Uh, may, maybe turning to the business, you know, one of the most often questions we get from investors is how to think about the addressable market for for ads, for advertising. How do you think about that? Yeah, great question. <laughs> Look, I think a lot of people in general actually misunderstand our, uh, under our addressable market. At least I hear a lot of uh, conflicting, uh, conflicting views of this. Um, the way I would think about it, or the, the point that I hear the most often, let me put it this way, is um, what is called the above the line advertising market that's half a trillion dollar market roughly uh, across the world slightly different estimates on it that's usually what's defined as our addressable market um, there's obviously i feel uh, the below the line advertising market that includes budgets for promotional pricing product placement sponsorships sponsorships and so on so that's a very very significant market as well and then there's completely different ways of looking at it you can take a very different vector for example and look at uh, commerce penetration in the u.s and as you uh, all know over or somewhere in the 80 percent range of commerce in the u.s uh, is still being conducted offline so with this shifting over time obviously that's a significant uh, opportunity i would say and in general if you think about what we do and the market we're in we're really in the business of connecting businesses to consumers or actually businesses to other businesses. If you think about it like this, I think as long as we're really driving incremental ROI for our partners and uh, for our uh, advertisers, we should be, uh, we should be in, a, in a pretty good place. Great. Um, Google started with the mission of organizing the world's information. Uh, the company's now 20 years into that journey. Maybe talk a little bit about how search has evolved and how Google is continuing to innovate against that mission. Yes, look, I mean, we make thousands of improvements uh, to search uh, every year. We see billions of searches every day, 15% uh, of them uh, we've never seen before. Actually, quite an interesting uh, number. And uh, I just have to uh, pay tribute to the teams who are working on this because the innovation behind this and, the, and, and, and everything that goes into it is, is simply extraordinary. Uh, so really incredible uh, accomplishment. Uh, we have a lot of uh, competition in this space. Um, I mean, just pick up your phone and look at all the different ways you can access information. Um, so we have to we have to be in our toes, obviously. And there's a lot more we can do better and a lot more we can do in the future. But just give you a few examples of all the innovation that has just gone uh, into search over literally just the, like the last couple of years. Um, just take uh, the example of uh, artificial intelligence completely revolutionizing our understanding of uh, natural language processing, natural, nat natural language understanding. You've seen launches like the BERT models that have a massive impact uh, on how we can understand queries on the search side, for example. Um, take the video side. We have a much deeper understanding of the, the deep semantics of video now, which now allows you to basically flip through the videos 
like a chapter in a book, really impressive technology. Um, take a look at things like uh, Lens. You could look at Google Lens as another input vector uh, into searches. Obviously, different input vectors. You could type or you could speak or you could actually use uh, images for it. Uh, and just the progress we've seen in this area, Lens can now recognize like in the in the area of 15 billion different uh, things, that's a, that's a very large number. I think that's up 15x from from just a couple of years ago. So very very significant progress here. That's all innovation. Uh, you look at products like Maps, for example. Um, the way we manage to introduce and give a much higher percentage of now what we call busyness information. So not business, but busyness. Whether whether. Um, merchants, uh, uh, retailers, and, and other places, restaurants are busy. Hugely important, actually, at the moment, if you think about um, distance management and all those different things. And we've gone, I think, 5x just since June in the last few months, just on that type of information. Uh, you look at something like augmented uh, reality live view and maps, where you can actually point now your camera at a business and see, for example, the safety information about the business or something along the lines that's actually pretty complex to do. Uh, we've launched this. You, you look at what uh, Duplex AI, for example, can do on the business side, where we have now automated systems reaching out, updating information, doing tasks for consumers. Uh, pretty impressive, actually. And then you have things that look a little bit like fun, like uh, the, the, it was pretty public, the hum to search launch, uh, for example, uh, where you can hum and then uh, uh, Google can recognize with pretty sophisticated machine learning um, what kind of song you're humming. But just think about the base technology and where you can take this over time. So it's actually a little bit more than just uh, being playful here. So there's a lot of innovation um, that might not be always so visible actually going into our core search product. Well, maybe maybe I'll stick with that. There was a lot in there. I want to stick with search for one minute because uh, I am curious as as you look at the uh, focusing on search, what are the areas where you can both improve the customer experience while at the same time think through the lens of increasing ROI uh, for your advertisers? Yeah, look, we make over uh, 100 enhancements uh, in the ads world. Uh, uh, roughly every quarter, uh, that's quite a quite a significant number. And I think the easiest way to think about it, or that's at least the easiest way for me to think about it, is by just breaking it down into the different uh, component parts. So let's look at the four key drivers of, let's take the search ads business here for a second. Number one is obviously the world of queries. So the, the key question is here, are we the best place for users uh, to turn to when they need more information? And then the next question is obviously, can we provide better answers? Can we provide more comprehensive answers when it comes to those uh, type of questions? And the real question then is with the shift to digital that we're seeing at the moment, are we at the end of the line here or are people going to use rather more search than less and look for more information on search? So that's the whole, the whole component of course. The second big one is obviously uh, the whole point around ads coverage, which uh, which is another big component. So really the question of what percent of our queries is either commercial, uh, number one, and then obviously what's the percentage that we actually cover uh, with ads. So here, um, our philosophy, as, as we've stated many times before, is we try to use ads that are actually, uh, or display ads that are helpful to users and when they're helpful to users. And uh, an interesting number again, on 80% of our searches, we actually show no ads. And so most of the ads that you're actually seeing are on searches with some form of uh, commercial intent, whatever, it could be anything, t-shirts, shoes, baby Yoda, uh, dolls, whatever, whatever, whatever you take here, right? So the question you have to ask yourself is, is are we actually optimized on this or is there, is there more room and can we do better in this area? And then the third uh, component uh, of this whole thing is obviously 
and all click-through rates. And the click-through rates depend on a lot of a lot of different things. But the questions here are: um, Are we are the ads that we're actually serving? Uh, giving you the best answer are the creatives the best creatives has obviously a very big impact on this uh, and you all know click-through rates in different industries and you have insights into those um, so um, big question of course is here um, like is it really why are we uh, away from 100% which we obviously are um, and is there a path for us to do better and if there's a path for us uh, to do better, then we probably have some upside uh, in this world. And um, the next one and the fourth component, and it's a really, really important one, is obviously the cost per click. And the cost per click is really dependent on, A, obviously, the quality of the traffic that we're sending to our partners and our advertisers, number one. But most importantly, it's driven on the conversion rate. And here, same thing I've said around uh, click-through rates. Uh, in the past, you have insights into conversion rates into different industry and it's obviously far from 100 percent so the question again here can we still do better uh, can we help uh, all partners uh, invest more in optimizing landing pages uh, can we be better in providing even better measurement tools because some of the conversions might not even be measured correctly uh, can we do better in helping uh, on integrating different systems and so on and so on uh, so i think that's probably the best way if you look at those four factors to think about uh, where innovation in our core search ad business is still uh, pretty vibrant Great. Okay. Um, earlier, you referenced um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and one of your earlier answers. There's, there's been a lot of buzz around AI and machine learning. There continues to be among the investment community and the broader uh, social commentary, as, and especially Google's investments in that area. C can you talk about how AI and machine learning improves Google's user experience, its ad offering, and the value you bring to advertisers? Yes, yeah, so we, we talked about what we're doing in core search uh, and uh, some of the innovation example. And AI obviously plays a huge role uh, when it comes to improving our advertising products across a whole bunch of different uh, areas. And I just give you a few examples. You have products like responsive search ads, for example. Uh, you have a new campaign types that we uh, just introduced, uh, like performance maps that are heavily built on our machine learning uh, capabilities. Uh, you have products like smart display campaigns, for example, um, where AI plays an, an integral role, frankly. Uh, broad match keywords make it a lot easier for advertisers to use our AI to basically do the keyword selection versus individually picking uh, all of them. And I could go on and on and on. And you have to also keep in mind that AI and ML will only get better. Uh, so I think we're actually, uh, we, we, we have an interesting path ahead here, uh, I would say. Great. Um, I think one of the, the biggest learnings of the past year is that the pandemic has clearly accelerated the adoption of e-commerce on a global scale. How has this shift affected your business? Look, uh, there's no doubt um, that we have seen accelerated uh, e-commerce adoption and the shift, uh, which is due to obviously uh, COVID. Uh, so no, no doubt about it. I would say uh, two big trends uh, that we're seeing here. The first one is uh, more people are buying things online than ever before, and that is definitely something that's benefiting our businesses. Uh, our business, it's uh, benefiting others. Uh, we see a lot of SMBs and local businesses uh, who actually manage this transition um, uh, correctly, also um, taking advantage of those trends. So that's that's undeniable. Uh, number one. The second one. I would say is that multi-touch points are actually in very, very high demand. 
so curbside uh, pick up, pick up in store, and so on. And we can see it in our query patterns. If you look at queries like available near me, for example, so the query available near me connected to something is up somewhere in the 100% range. And if you look at a, a query pattern like curbside pickup, it's actually up somewhere in the 3,000% range. Uh, so obviously merchants who have this more comprehensive uh, offer um, can take advantage of this and are probably uh, pretty well positioned. And we see this a bunch of whole, across a whole bunch of different retailers. Take simple example, it's a company like Petco, where we actually see curbside pickup drove over 100% increase in their e-commerce business after doing the right uh, adjustments. And it makes intuitive sense, uh, obviously. And in general, I would say the advertisers that are doing the best here uh, are really the ones that pivoted quickly to react to these changes in users' behavior, spend a lot of time in understanding the nuances, the subtle shifts in demand here, and in how to position themselves, um, they're, they're probably doing the best at the moment. Got it. Um, I want to stick with this theme of e-commerce uh, for just maybe one more question. Google's made a number of interesting announcements in the e-commerce and shopping vertical of the past few months, including free product listings on the Google Shopping tab, commission-free buy on Google checkout experience. How do you see Google's market positioning changing post those announcements? And what are the next steps you think are ahead for Google to further capitalize on the e-commerce opportunity that's still evolving? Look, we took some very significant steps that you that you mentioned correctly. Uh, it is really um, it, it's really a return to first principles. If we're honest, uh, free listings, zero commissions. Uh, what it's trying to do is really trying to help the the barriers uh, for online retail uh, help lower those. And um, and we want to become uh, an even better place for stores to connect actually with potential customers. So that's a big part of why we're doing this. Uh, there's different ways that you can do this. You can actively drive traffic to their websites. You can uh, offer the conversion on your own side, uh, obviously. Uh, but it doesn't mean that shopping ads, and I think that's, a, that's an important point here as well, will not continue to be a powerful way and play a big role in obviously connecting retailers to different consumers. Uh, but I think the general principle and the way to think about it is we really want to provide an open platform here. Um, we want to make sure this platform is as comprehensive as possible, as comprehensive, as, as relevant as possible, which basically means we need to have like great products, the best products ideally with the best prices, big selection, really, really important. Um, and that's why we feel this, this slightly more platformy approach to what we're doing here uh, it is really a good path. It also allows uh, our partners to bring their own third-party providers like PayPal and Shopify and so on. So I think we're actually on a, on a very interesting, very good track here. Okay, um, I want to turn to YouTube. Um, historically, YouTube was heavily weighted to brand advertising, though more recently we've seen YouTube successfully implement direct response advertising as an offering. Uh, can you talk about that strategy and the recent investments you made to attract more direct response advertisers to YouTube as a platform? Yes, it's a. Our, it's actually an area we're we're uh, we're, we're quite uh, happy with. Uh, if you remember, our direct response YouTube business was basically non-existent, non-existent, uh, roughly three years ago, uh, and we've made incredible uh, progress uh, over this. And it's now one of our largest and, and fastest-growing ads businesses on YouTube. Uh, and we see really interesting metrics here as well, uh, like 60%, for example, of our to review for action uh, customers, which is the integral part of the direct response offering here, uh, are actually new to YouTube. 
Um, and we have more than doubled the number of active advertisers using TrueView for Action uh, just in the first six months of 2020. So there's a lot of metrics really supporting this. Uh, very, very happy with this. And you see it across the board. And again, an example, uh, we have players like Masterclass who basically took advantage of the opportunity and see significant uplifts in all of their key metrics. Um, that's, that's a big part. Um, we also have to remember that we have a very, very big brand business on YouTube, a very successful brand business. Uh, it was hit hard uh, in the early stages uh, of the pandemic, no doubt about it, but it has really rebounded since in Q3. Uh, so we're very happy with this. We see impressive metrics, friends, frankly. Uh, if you look at it overall, uh, YouTube development, uh, we reach more 18 to 49-year-olds uh, in the U.S. than any than all linear TV networks combined. Think about that. That's a pretty that's a pretty meaningful number. And just yesterday, Nielsen, uh, just to give you another uh, idea of where where things are heading, Nielsen has announced a very big uh, first um, where they're actually uh, going and introducing a new cross-media measurement solution that will actually reach all different uh, types of video platforms. Um, so so we're, we're, we're happy with, with where this is happening, uh, where this is heading. Um, we're also experimenting uh, with some interesting new things, uh, better product integrations on YouTube. There's a lot of commercial intent on YouTube and how can we offer better shopping features and so on. Uh, look at it as a very interesting shopping surface over time. So lots of exciting stuff in this world. Got it. Um, maybe turning to another area, you know, how do you broadly think about pursuing and prioritizing new monetization opportunities across your platform? You know, what are the early learnings, for example, for the monetization of products like Maps? Look, um, innovation, experimentation is a part of our DNA. It's what we've been doing for a long, uh, for a long time. Uh, Maps is a very good example uh, for this. You can look at Maps in two different ways. You can look at it as a pure utility. It basically helps you to get from point A to point B. That's one way uh, of looking at it. There's another way of looking at it where you can see this is really an incredible discovery surface um, where you can have consumers discover a lot of different new worlds for them that's that are really, really important. And I think the latter is actually a very interesting path if you think about uh, uh, intense um, or, let's say, increased monetization uh, in the future. It's also really relevant for small businesses. Again, that's a theme that we're pushing very hard because we really feel it's important uh, to support them. So you look at some of our uh, small business products here, like business profiles, where we've made thousands of improvements over the years. And then you think about how this can come together uh, with next generation discovery uh, uh, areas and improvements on maps. I think that's a that's a very, uh, very interesting area for the future. Um, and then there's obviously other uh, products. Think about something uh, which we've announced a while ago, our discovery ads um, that are uh, cutting across a whole bunch of different services uh, and surfaces. So not just the discover feed, but also across YouTube and across Gmail. And it's basically performance focused image ads. Uh, and we're, we're seeing a lot of interesting developments there. Uh, we reach an audience of over 3 billion people with it. Uh, so, so stay tuned for this one. Great. Okay. Um, I wanted to turn to the, the regulatory framework. Um, when you think uh, of the regulatory and privacy headwinds in a market like the U.S., for example, uh, CCPA coming out of California, how does that impact Google from a product perspective? And how much of an impact have you even seen it uh, on the business so far? And then maybe one quick follow-up, you know, looking longer term, how is Google preparing for the evolving regulatory and privacy landscape um, over the next couple of years? Okay. 
scrutiny is is frankly nothing new uh, for Google. Uh, we want to uh, stay focused on delivering incredible products and services uh, for our users. That's our number one uh, priority. Um, we've publicly said that the more, that the just as an example, the Department of Justice uh, lawsuit is deeply, deeply uh, flawed. Um, people use Google and choose Google because they actually choose to use it uh, and not because they're forced to or because they don't find or can't find any other alternatives. Um, it's, it's an integral part of our business um, that we focus on user trust. It's absolutely core to what we do. And like regulators, we have exactly the same interest. Uh, we want to protect our consumers and uh, we want to make sure they can actually benefit from new uh, technologies. So we're working closely with, with regulators across the world, obviously. Uh, and when you take the example of uh, CCPA that you mentioned, uh, we're complying actually with all the CCPA uh, requirements the same way we've complied with all the GDPR uh, requir requirements. Um, we've actually made um, our tools and, and the system and the way we look at it available uh, across the globe. So not just in California, if you take the CCPA uh, example, um, we've led in a lot of different areas. We're actively uh, supporting and advocating for federal privacy uh, legislation. So that's something we're heavily involved in. Um, we've had, we have led uh, the industry uh, when it comes to uh, advertising privacy, um, the level of transparency and choice and control we have given to users uh, over time, I think is, is literally industry leading. Uh, and we get an incredible amount of positive feedback uh, for this. Um, we're always trying, it's a big part of our strategy. We're trying actually to do more uh, with less data, contrary to what many people might be uh, thinking. It's really a big uh, focus area for us. Um, and we're also trying to balance the needs for privacy on one hand with the needs for supporting broader ecosystems on the other hand. And that's why we're heavily investing in new technologies. Uh, we have some really interesting things lined up. There's a new technology, for example, called uh, FLOC, <laughs> uh, F-L-O-C, uh, federated, federated Learning of Cohorts, um, that, that looks uh, quite promising in a lot of other things uh, in, in, in our different uh, development stages. Um, so I, I think we're really, we're really doing what's necessary here. Great, thanks for your perspective on that. I think, I think we have time for maybe just one more question. And and given the time in the conference every year, I normally like to end by looking forward with our speakers. And and you were so gracious to make yourself available for the first time for the conference this year. You know, as you look out beyond 2020. What are some of the key challenges that Alphabet might be facing going forward? But then on the other hand, what initiatives are you the most excited about going into 2021 uh, for the company? So uh, the first one I would mention on the challenges side is we really need to manage the path back to office work uh, correctly. That's a very important one. We will see a future of work that is definitely built around the hybrid model. Uh, but innovation, ideation, brainstorming, bringing teams together are such an important part of our culture. Uh, so how do we really manage this transition back into this new world correctly while maintaining, uh, ideally even accelerating uh, our pace of innovation? So that's a really, really important one, um, uh, number one. The second one, really staying focused on the innovation pieces. How do we stay nimble? How do we stay fast? I mean, these are turbulent times. There's a lot of incoming things, right? So how can we really stay focused on what really truly our mission is? And we talked about this before, just providing the best users, uh, the best services to our users and the best products to our users. Um, so really this nimbleness and, and focus uh, is, is probably the second, the second big challenge. And we spend a lot of time uh, studying others in the industry and uh, trying to, to really get better at this. Um, so that's on the on the challenges side. Uh, what are we What are we excited about? Um, look, we we covered it a little bit. Um, 
the shift that we're seeing to digital at the moment. And it's sad that it was triggered by COVID, uh, obviously, but it is it is happening. That is something you have to be excited about and no doubt about it. Um, the opportunity we're seeing in everything commerce related um, is significant and is a significant part of this. So I think that's worthwhile uh, uh, mentioning again. Uh, YouTube. Uh, I'm very, very excited about YouTube um, and where this can go. Uh, you heard me talk about it, so no need to uh, repeat all of this. But whether it's on direct response, whether it's on branding, whether it's at, uh, looking at the at the really high levels of commercial intent we're seeing on the YouTube platform and using this in a smarter way so everybody can benefit, users can benefit, creators can benefit, advertisers can benefit, merchants can uh, can benefit. Um, so, so that's definitely an area to be excited about. And the last one I would say is, in general, um, the innovation we're still seeing in our labs in the world of AI and machine learning, and you look at what some of our, our brilliant teams are working on, um, it's, uh, it's really mind-blowing. And uh, you, can, you can see where we then use some of this innovation and bring it back into our core products, uh, not only on the user side, but for our advertisers, for our monetization products. Um, so, yeah, so that's the, that's the last one I would really mention here. Okay, there was a lot in there, so thank you so much, Philip. Thank you, thank you for the team at Alphabet for being part of the UBS TMT conference. And then I personally, Philip, wanted to wish you uh, a good set of holidays, be safe, be well. Uh, we can't wait to see what Alphabet and Google uh, do in terms of product and, and, and the market in 2021. Thanks so much. No, Eric, thank you. thank you so much. And again, stay safe, stay healthy, everybody. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you again for having me here. Um, thank you. Be well, take care.